GameStop is not tanking right before it closes. It's about to close, right? In like five minutes? I thought it was 4.30. No, it's 4. I think it is 4.30. Really? Or actually, I thought it was 5.30. Like, but I'm probably wrong about that. the market close? We got some pro-level fucking trading going on. Googling when does the market close. <laughs> hold, 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 hold. <laughs> I mean, we could we could talk about crypto or uh, about the stock market a little bit. So y'all getting rich? No, no, no. I don't think any of us are gonna get. I mean, I I don't think the point of it is for us to get rich. I think, right? At least yeah. for me, I just want to be a part of part of this, like you know, uh, class war. Mm-hmm. Although the f- I read this thing today that was saying how like. When you're buying GameStop stock, you might be like fucking over the hedge fund that's worth like $12 billion, but you're giving money to BlackRock, which is worth like $12 trillion. <laughs> so, yeah, there's definitely like flaws in, in this whole like class solidarity approach or mindset. Yeah, it's not it, so much like activist investing as it is like meme investing. But I do yeah. think that, you know, it's seeing these kind of like these like, various like chuds from all over the internet like kind of unite in like this collective action direct action uh campaign is inspiring in itself totally and it's like retribution for the the housing market collapse and like i keep seeing that like that image of um the wall street people drinking champagne looking down (laughs) on the occupy wall street totally yeah have you seen that yeah it like keeps talking up and i'm just like man Fuck these people. I know. I really daydreamed that I sniped one of them yesterday. (laughs) That was the craziest thing about Occupy because it was, you know, Zuccotti Park is in between these two giant high rise. And like, you just Mm -hmm. know that when you were down there in the crowd, they were just looking at you. Yeah. I used to walk a dog that lived in one of those. And it was, yeah, some like 30 year old trader just shitting on it. (laughs) But little did he know that his dog was protesting every day. (laughs) (laughs) by shitting on the floor (laughs) (laughs) but it's definitely like yeah there i'm finding like a weird silver lining is the wrong word but it's like it's given me like a small amount of hope i feel like i've been like really like disheartened about the world in the last few days and then reading like the message boards and everything and seeing all these people like especially people being like you know 
like these stories of like parents like becoming alcoholics after the housing market collapse mm-hmm. and like their children on Reddit now being like, I'm doing this for my mom. It's yeah, they're like, like writing manifestos yeah. and shit. It's crazy. Yeah. And like just the word capitalism was trending on Twitter for like the past three days. <laughs> Pretty funny. Also, it's so funny how like the the movie The Big Short, have you guys seen it? Yeah. Mm, I think it's so, like, yeah. The screenplay oh, yeah. is written in such a specific particular way. Like the way they talk is like this really like verbose, like witty, fast paced, like jargon speak. And it's just funny to like read the exact same type of language in all of these like let me explain to you motherfuckers what's really going on yeah and it's just like three paragraphs it's like it does it's really feel surreal. like a lot of people cosplaying that movie mm-hmm, totally a lot of explaining of mm-hmm. yeah lots of explaining <laughs> but i've learned a lot about how our broken system works yeah yeah, yeah I, I mean it's funny to like hear these explanations from people who like have been into it for like three days but it is <laughs> really cool to see um you know basically the stock market being exposed as being just fake and how these kind of like matt you know how the same tactics being applied by like day-to-day people um are just like you know constantly done by like hedge funds and investors mm-hmm. and then like they're allowed to do it and then when like the people do it, it's shut down by like the apps themselves or by, you know, like, <laughs> like it, it's just, it, I think it exposed a lot. It's like radicalizing these capitalists <laughs> against mm-hmm. capitalism. It's tight. Mm-hmm. And the, the actual letter that um, Robin Hood sent out with their thing was just so like insulting. It's like, we're doing this to protect you. And it's like, full. This is my money. Like, I don't want your protection. <laughs> and obviously, you're not protecting me. You're protecting the hedge funds. And you're called Robin Hood. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's the best part. I love that. I mean, it's just like <laughs> Tesla. Right. The Dive Podcast. Welcome to the Dive Podcast. Thank you. Featuring Dive, the band. No, we didn't introduce ourselves last time. Yeah. I know. That's okay. Let's keep not introducing ourselves because I kind of hate it. Yeah. It seems Yeah, awkward. if you want to hear the introductions, just like listen to the beginning of like the first or second episode mm-hmm. and then skip to this one. Yeah, and we usually like try not to talk about like topics that are at hand in the in the zeitgeist because the news cycle changes so fast that like, I mean, it's one of my pet peeves on podcasts is if I'm listening to something that's like one day old, I'm like, Oh my God, move on. (laughs) So we try not to do that, but yeah, we don't have an editor yet. Yeah, we might. We'll see. (laughs) So depending on if we kept that, some of that, intro chatter in or not we won't talk about wall street but uh we will talk about the band slint oh yeah and we'll talk about this a little bit more later but like how they were a band that kind of accidentally put out a really influential record but they broke up 
And so all of their success was had after they broke up, which is maybe not a common story, but it's definitely happened with other uh, artists and groups. Before. I mean, yeah, yeah. Look at the look at the arc of, um, you know, I don't know if anybody watched the inauguration, which I definitely did not watch, but the new radicals, they were like <laughs> the they reformed for the fucking inauguration for some reason, but they made really? that like. Yeah, they played at the inauguration. I don't know. I, I didn't watch it. It's a, a fucking spectacle that is completely stupid to me. But um, yeah, they made that like "You Only Get What You Give" song, yeah. and then and then broke up. That was like, that oh, was they the, the, they were broken up when that song was uh, popular the first no, time. No, I yeah. think that I th- I'm pretty sure that they were around and then broke up like during their. Uh, Rise to Fame, right? Because I remember that, like, I remember when that album came out, and they were like a visible band. I yeah, could be actually, wrong though. I don't know. It was just when we were talking about, you know, bands that that uh, kind of got famous after they were already broken up. That that was just in my mind because I was just still mad at the inauguration, and they were in my head. <laughs> well, there's definitely yeah. plenty of um, revivalism that happens in the music world where, you know, even if a band's like pretty big, they'll have a weird kind of second wind, like 30 years into their career or whatever. And be mm-hmm. like, Oh yeah, we're still here. Let's go on tour. Yeah. But there, there's so many bands where that somebody like essential to the band died where they try to do that, you know, like sublime still tour. When I, when I suggested we'd talk about bands that got big after they um, broke up, I was thinking of sublime and I was all ready to, you guys be like, Sublime sucks. And I was going to defend them. <laughs> um, but then I listened to Sublime and they do suck. <laughs> yeah, um, weird. Weird for you to like instinctively want to defend them. I Well, I realized I do like it. It's just nostalgia for me. I, I listened yeah. to that one record, 40 Ounces of Freedom, so many times. And it's, I was like, oh, it's so good. And then I listened back to it, like kind of hearing it through your guys' ears. And I was like, oh, wow, this is very bad. I mean, I like the interesting one because like, you know, we're all from, none of us are from the West Coast, you know, and the most shocking thing to me moving to LA was like, you know, it's kind of like when you go to Australia and you find out that ACDC is like the fucking Beatles there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it was like the same thing in moving to Southern California. Sublime is like the fucking Beatles. You know, I went to like one of the first AA meetings that I went to regularly was this like open mic thing where people would pick up a guitar and sing a song. And at the end of every meeting, there's this like big sing along. And it was every single time I'd be like, what song is this? And the dude <laughs> next to me would be like, it's Sublime. And they would like... <laughs> It's just, it's such a huge part of Southern California culture that I think that we all missed out on because we're not yeah. from here. I mean, at, at least where we were going to school, Sublime was like the popular, like rich kid, like Connecticut, uh, like Birkenstock wearing type fools. Like dudes that were also like into Grateful Dead and stuff. Like I just right, associated like the it with rich that people. The jocks start smoking weed and then start talking yeah. to us. Right. Yeah, yeah it's weed exactly. music. Yeah, yeah, and um, and so I resisted it for, uh, until I was a lot older, and then I was like, "Oh yeah, this is great." When I was, you know, playing acoustic guitar and singing and stuff, because yeah, you know, he does have a good voice. Weren't they? I mean, didn't they have some success before that guy died, or was it all? Well, yeah, they were like locally successful, um, but that I mean, 
that record was so huge and he died way before that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was like kind of a local phenomenon. Remember when we were driving down to play that Vans thing and we drove through Garden Grove and we were like, oh, yeah. this, is, <laughs> this is where it all happened. You look around, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, you can just see Lou Dog in the van going down the street. <laughs> yeah. Mm. I remember walking around in New York one time and seeing that the Sublime cover band was playing like Madison Square Garden or something insane like that. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's so weird that a cover band could play a bigger venue than the actual band ever played. <laughs> what was the, it might've been, was it the dub all-stars? It was like yeah. bad, bad fish or something. Or wait, no, maybe uh, that's it. No. I don't remember. Well, dub all-stars one... is sublime without the guy. Yeah. It's and like they have the, some other the, guy. Yeah. Or like, they, do, uh, they did that record dub side of the moon. Oh yeah. They, they did that. Yeah. Weird. Um, <laughs> Yeah, like the the bands that reform without the front man. I guess that's like a side note. But did did anybody yeah. see that movie Control about Joy Division? And then uh, they like re they like uh, made a version of Joy Division with the fucking actor who played Ian Curtis like singing, <laughs> really? and they would they oh did in the shows movie? and stuff. I thought you were talking yeah, about the, New Order for a second, like because they just kept well, going yeah. without. I think it was New Order, but with this actor who played Ian Curtis fronting the band, and they would like play shows. So he was like 20 years old and then all, all the other guys were like 50. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Something like that. I don't know. Well, that's what uh, Almost Famous is about too, isn't it? No. No? Oh, yeah. No, it is. Yeah. A band kind of like imploding right uh, before they get... But they they were playing arenas and shit. Well, no. Oh, it, it's about the the... They replaced the singer with like an actor who's... Or like a cover band singer or something uh, i don't remember that you i don't, know, yeah, I don't remember that either maybe that's a different movie i don't even know i think it's a different <laughs> movie almost famous is the one where the kid like goes on tour and he's becoming a journalist yeah oh i think i'm wrong there's some Jasonly. other movie anyway who cares <laughs> what'd you say <laughs> katrina just informed me it's called rockstar with malk Wahlberg. <laughs> 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 uh, sick but my big example of the posthumous success was Nick Drake, who totally. uh, is someone I certainly unironically like. Um, I didn't know about that. Because he kind of, you know, he put out three records, and in my opinion, they're all very good. But the last one that he made, Pink Moon, is like a really depressive record, and there's this kind of... the. Um, what do you call it when the, the song is the same title as the record? Eponymous? Eponymous? Sure. That, uh, the song Pink Moon, you know, it kind of on its surface sounds like a nice uh, kind of happy-ish song. You know, Pink Moon, oh, that sounds pretty. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it's a song about the apocalypse and the, like how the the blood moon is going to come get you all. Um, but that song was in a Volkswagen commercial in 1999, which really like kind of blew him up. I mean, real heads always knew about Nick Drake cause they always know, but you know, he, that was like the, the second wave of Nick Drake fame, but he was never famous in his, when he was alive. Cause he died totally. when he was like 20 or something. That's such a sad way to have like a 
reinvigorated. I remember the Volkswagen commercials from the late nineties. They were always like, like cool. You know, there's like the Mr. Yeah. Roboto one, but you know, I mean, then I think a lot of people got exposed to Nick Drake from watching garden state. Mm. Um, and I forget if it's Royal Tenant. one of the Wes Anderson movies uses, um, I think fly, which is off brighter mm. later. Um, and I feel like there, there's been like a couple of, resurgences of Nick Drake appreciation. But yeah, his story is really sad. I wonder if, yeah. uh, speaking of another sad story, I wonder if it's more common for like an individual artist to have this phenomenon. Cause Arthur Russell is a good example too. Mm-hmm. Oh um, yeah. Someone who's like, like extremely influential now and is cited by like, you know, bands and artists of like all different genres. Um, but I feel like, yeah, there's like more of a narrative of like the reclusive um, artist when it's just one person. Whereas when it's like a band, you're more likely to have like tours and shit like that. And and a more like conventional apparatus behind you. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Like I think there are. Or... Right. I mean, those are just that. That's like. I mean, I, I that seems slightly different than the slint thing because that's just like the singer dying tragically yeah um but i i feel like minor threat is kind of an example of a band that like broke up before they like really got to before they became as influential as they are today you know imakai was already moving on to fugazi and and his post minor threat projects before they became like the minor threat that we know today well that's Kind of the story of like punk in general is that it wasn't really popular at the time that it was happening. And then now it's like canon, you know? Right. It was like really localized. Um, yeah, I think that's punk is interesting segue if we're ready to segue. Yeah. Um, cause you know, in the, the late eighties, early nineties, there was, you know, punk was kind of like dying or whatever, and it was becoming hardcore. And you see in like the big cities, New York and LA and stuff, all these punk bands um, and hardcore bands that didn't, I wouldn't say they all sounded the same, but there was like, they all sounded pretty similar. But then Mm -hmm. a little bit after that time, in like the Midwest and like Chicago was a big hub, but like also smaller towns like Louisville, there was this like move of rock music away from punk and hardcore into like this weird, more kind of artistic out there, different sounding like, you know, post rock and indie rock and math rock and all that stuff. Totally. I feel like the late eighties underground rock scene was like, particularly macho and abrasive and like, especially even in the circles that, that slint ran in like, you know, Jesus lizard and, and like all the Steve Albini bands. Set me on fire, kerosene. 
they call it the the pig fuck scene, but it was like was this kind of um very like macho and abrasive music and I saw that. Why pig fuck? I don't get that. I don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh but you know, Slint was just like completely alien to that to that scene because I think in, in that podcast, um, Ben that you sent it's what's it called? Apology? Yeah, the apology. The apology, yeah. Dave Paho was talking about how like in the Louisville scene, it was encouraged to sound like yourself. And if you sounded like somebody else, you would get called out for it. You know, they're like, why would I listen to your band if I can just listen to Black Sabbath or whatever? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting because I was trying to think of other bands that sounded like Slint because I think one of their, one of the cool things about them is that like they have a really unique sound. Mm-hmm. Um, especially the record Spiderland. Um, and I, the only bands that I could think of were like, oh, like Juno 44 kind of has a slinty thing. looked him up and realized that they're also a Louisville band. <laughs> right. And, um, you know, came from that band Rodan that was kind of like a hardcore band. But then when that band broke up, it was like they started all these other bands that then became Juma 44 and um, Shipping, Shipping News. News. Yeah. And, um, yeah, Shipping News is especially slinty. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, like, I I, th- I think we could probably talk about it later, but like, you know, even a lot of slint stuff isn't, isn't very slinty, you know, there's like, it, it is such a bizarre and singular sound that is like difficult to, um, replicate, you know, but I think more bands are inspired by just like the dynamics and like the, the, the patience and like technicality of it. Mm-hmm. And one thing we touched on 
last time at the end of the podcast was um, kind of like Spotify and the death of the record label. And Touch and Go was such a um, well like curated label where not all the bands like sounded alike or anything, but they all have this like commonality. Like some of the ones that you mentioned, like, um, you know, all the Steve Albini stuff, Big Black and Shellac, and then Jesus Lizard and stuff. But then also um, Butthole Surfers, and then like later on, like the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs and TV on the radio and Coco Rosie and stuff. It's pretty like diverse lineup, but there's something that makes sense about it all to me being in the same label that I really like. Oh, can I tell my really cute, wholesome touch and go story? Please do. I feel, I feel like maybe you guys know this, but, um, when I was like, so touch and go, I think an important thing, important part of the story is touch and go started as a fanzine. Um, and so when I was in like middle school, I thought it'd be cool to start a fanzine. So I had like a copy of Rolling Stone magazine or something. And I went in the back, the way back pages where it has a list of all the advertisers and phone numbers for them. And it's all these record labels, you know, and I like would call the phone numbers and say, you know, Hey, I like with my like 12 year old voice, like, hi, I'm want to, I have starting a fanzine. And like nobody gave a fuck except I called Touch and Go because they had put an ad, I think, um, for the new Dirty Three record at the time, which is called Horse Stories. And um, they sent me like a whole package of shit, like all these like Touch and Go stickers. They sent me Dirty Three Horse Stories on CD, which that album like changed my life and completely blew my mind as like a 12 year old or whatever. Um, and a couple other things and it was just really really cool and then like the whole fanzine you know i scanned the sticker and turned it into like an ad for touch and go that i could <laughs> put in my zine and uh i think i reviewed horse stories but it, it was just like i've always had a extremely soft spot in my heart for that label not just because of their output because of that experience because i think they're the only label that even like you know honored my request at all so anyway that's the whole story that's sick though. And yeah. such a little like time capsule too of like street teams and like, you know, writing letters to labels and bands that you liked and then getting this little package in the mail back. Totally. It was extremely exciting. The Dive Podcast. Um, well, I, I feel like that's a cool little like simplistic overview of like Louisville and the United States rock and roll in let's say like, well, they started in what? 86. I think it was early. Yes. I think it was a little earlier. They were playing ship together before that, but right. So yeah, I guess really the, the eighties, I guess I'm, in my mind, I'm thinking of the 90s because I I was born in 86, so it's not like I was like conscious of any of this shit happening. But um, we could we could drill down more into um, Slint specifically. I guess one more little piece of history is like their what they were doing before Slint, which was um, 
yeah, languid and flaccid. Important, important contextually to like talk about uh, what they did before. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't. Are there any recordings of languid and flaccid? There's a little clip in the documentary on YouTube called Breadcrumb Trail, and that's what the documentary is called. There's like one demo tape recording. It's cool. Yeah, it's a it's really chaotic. That's an interesting name for a band for a bunch of like 15-year-olds. Totally. <laughs> Very literary. And they like were younger, kind of right? Weren't they like 12 or 13? Yeah, I think they were even younger. Because they were at like this, you know, alternative, like kind of artsy, uh, like middle school thing, like a Montessori style thing. Where, yeah, like, it, it art... reminded me of Mead School where I used to work, where like, I remember... Like, they would ask the kids, like, so do you want to go to math class or do you just want to play video games? <laughs> Stuff like that. It's like, you could play, ahead, video, play games? video games? Yeah, well, they had, like, you know, artistic, like, indie video game room. Oh, right. Like, computer games. Yeah, yeah. But it was like, you know, I was playing first-person shooters and stuff. <laughs> um, and then, so that was uh, two of the dudes from Slint. I can't remember. Is it the two? Yeah. Are they brothers? No. no, but I guess they were, like, really good buddies. Oh, what I'm yeah. thinking of is that uh, uh, Ned Oldham was also in that band, and that's uh, Bonnie Prince Billy, Will Oldham's older brother. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think the original Slint members were um, Britt Wolford and um, Brian McMahon, I think. So but Britt they... was the drummer? Mm-hmm. And Another they guy were kind was the guitarist? Of like, they were kind of, yeah. They were kind of the... Uh, I don't know, like the 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 core of or the like, John and Paul, the John and Paul, especially of <laughs> of Spiderland. Um, but yeah, I think just like real quick talking about like the kind of music that's that their pre um, slint bands made is important. You know, like Squirrel Bait was kind of just like a pretty generic hardcore band that had you know that toured around and you know got signed to um, Homestead Records, which was. Uh, owned by Gerard Costley, who went on to found Matador. Um, and these are all still when they're like 14 now, right? Yeah, they're, they're kids. Yeah, super young. Like going on tour with hardcore bands. Yeah. That yeah, just I mean, blew they, my mind. And like their parents, like or at least the one guy, Britt's parents, just seemed like pretty traditional, like Christian, what are, like... Unitarians. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah. I don't know too many Unitarians, I guess. <laughs> pretty, pretty open-minded people, I think. Yeah. It's the most lax of the Christian denominations. Oh, okay, it's cool. it's barely so they're Christian. Like, yeah, fuck it. Child yeah, they just... tour in a hardcore band. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> well, there's a story in the in that documentary where they like drop them off at their first punk show when they're like 12 or whatever. Mm-hmm. Which is a pretty pretty cool thing for our parents to do. Mm-hmm. And his parents, you know, let the band practice in their basement for years and you know, right. I think they were they were really supportive. And in the documentary, it's really wholesome. They're like still supportive, like all these years later. Yeah, it's cute. They're like um, reading fan mail that they still get. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, like, you know, they're they're. I think just like like taking the like very like the straight ahead kind of like hardcore band, like very Husker Du sounding squirrel bait stuff, you know. And then like with when they met Dave Paho, who was playing like who's kind of like a shreddy metal guy. I think it's important to like think about the the music that they're into and then how slint represents like them just getting bored with the like the music that was surrounding them or like with what they grew up on and like so slint is like 
it's almost like a post grunge record before grunge even existed. It's like, mm-hmm. it's, it like represents this like kind of evolution past their, their roots. Cause they had been like paying their dues as, as kids and touring and doing all the shit with like the, the more like, you know, punk hardcore scene yeah, stuff. And some of that, like the squirrel bait stuff reminds me of like early Nirvana, like bleach era stuff, you know, it's like a similar vibe to that. Um, and then, yeah, they evolved right out of it before it was even a thing. Totally. Yeah, it's like each member individually outgrowing their, like, different roots and, go, you know, like, I think being, like, a shredder, like, technical metal guy, like, as a kid, you know, and then Slint is, like, with, I'm talking about Dave Pajo, mm-hmm. like, had to kind of, like, embrace just this, like, really minimalist style, which is, like, the opposite of what he had been practicing. It was his idea, though, right? Wasn't he the one who was like, yeah, I just kind of turned off my overdrive one day or something like that? <laughs> yeah, because he he was the one who... What band were they? What was the other band? Not Squirrel Bait. Maurice. Yeah, Maurice broke up because Pajo and the other member were just getting into like weird, like clean guitar sounds, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was but, Maurice that sounded like Bleach. I can't remember. But Tweez... Is definitely not clean guitars, and I think that's like the main uh, criticism of that record is that you can't like the guitar stuff is such a big part of Slint that it's like real technical and weird and off kilter. But it's so there's like so much chorus and distortion on all the guitars you can kind of mm-hmm. not really hear what's going on. Yeah, so Tweez was like four years before Spiderland. And it, it to me, it just sounds kind of like there is that like rebellion against you know punk and metal, but it feels like a step on the way to to you know to the Spiderland sound. Yeah, and for like sure. I th- I think there are way different people in terms of like the the subject matter of like you know and just like the vibe of of the you know even just like the. I think there's a lot of differences, like the the subject matter of the songs and then the way that Albini produced that record, which is like, you know, I think one of the dudes left the band because he was so bummed on the Albini end product because like it felt like this thing where like, you know, Steve Albini is recording these like random studio sounds and like all the shit to like fill all the space on, on, on the record. But like, there you know it didn't it didn't need it so like they they were talking about how like i think one of the guys said that the end product sounded sounded false or something like like steve albini was trying to entertain himself and then the bands just like went along with it well i I feel like that's like slightly i don't think it's necessarily wrong but i do think it's maybe slightly unfair to Albini just because of the way the recording atmosphere of that album is described as this like chaotic experimentation driven, like fun, like mess of a recording, you know, and you could hear it in the, they have these weird, like, um, like my headphones are fucked up. Yeah, exactly. The first song on Tweez. Yeah. There's just the, there's no vocals on the record, but there's all these recordings of them having these weird conversations with Albini. There's one, that's really funny where it's like, hey, remember that money we talked about? You can forget <laughs> about it. <laughs> it's like really, really 
just, you know, so I feel like because of that, like, I'm sure, you know, in the moment, the band was like super down with all the experimentation too. And maybe in hindsight, they were like, oh, we kind of watered down um, the album that we wanted to make, which then it probably informed their decision for Spiderland. Definitely. I mean, Tweeze is still a great record, but you can hear the influences so much more, you know, like that song, Darlene just straight up sounds like Minutemen. You know, Dave Pajo was obsessed with Minutemen and the the bass playing on it just sounds like Mike Watt. It's like super Minutemen sounding or like um, like so much uh, influence from like the Steve Albini bands, like Big Black, you know, just straight up sounds like, uh, you know, Big Black bass lines and like it's much more just a product of its influences rather than like this kind of like processing and like post uh influences thing um so one thing was like the words hardcore and emo how depending on like who you are and like what music you're into at what time like those words can mean extremely different things totally because like even you know saying squirrel bait was a hardcore band and Tweez is kind of a hardcore record. Like, a lot of what I think of when I think of hardcore is like screaming vocals, which mm-hmm. neither of those really have. Um, and there's also this weird kind of like swing element. You know what I'm talking about? Especially with the bass playing of this totally like, like the first half of that song, Kent, which is just like this kind of like goofy, like swingy thing. Mm-hmm. And then the second half sounds a lot like Spiderland to me. It's like the closest they got to the Spiderland sound before that record, but except with like a wanky like guitar solo over it for some reason. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that song. Rules, uh, Pam straight up sounds like a Mac DeMarco guitar solo. <laughs> it's like <laughs> yeah. this chorused out guitar just like shredding. Yeah. Um. But then, yeah, Colin mentioned briefly the vocals or the, if that's what you want to call it, on Tweez, which is, you know, I think they were just messing around, but it's a really cool idea that in place of actual singing or like even on Spiderland, like spoken word, it's just these like out of context clips of people talking. Yeah, one of them was they would they would just write down random words like ad libs or something, and then record themselves saying the words, and then like splice them together and loop it. But like actual with like real tape looping it. Mm-hmm. I don't understand why they would go through so oh, much like effort. The the Burroughs cut up method that that Paho was talking about on that on that oh, podcast. Yeah. That's funny that I don't even think they made that connection, but. Um, I mean, to me, like, the vocals on Tweez just, like, remind you that this is an album made by, like, these goofy young <laughs> yeah. kids, you know? He's, like, talking yeah. about, like, tweezer fetish and all this stuff. <laughs> and I, they really did outgrow that a lot on um, Spiderland. But, like, there's just this, like, I don't know. It's, like, it's, it's cute. You know, it's sweet to me. Yeah. It's sweet. It's also extremely wholesome. Um despite it being like very like <laughs> depraved and fucked up sounding at yeah. times and, and uncomfortable to listen to, but like all the songs are named after each of the members' parents, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is like such a funny, wholesome idea to me. Yeah. Especially in, 
especially like in the context of punk, which was all about like rebelling against authority. Exactly. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I do think that's like really like, and I would love to talk about it more when we get to Spiderland, but I do think that like is really integral to the way the band sounds like they're, I think that's part of the reason why their music does sound so unique and alien was because they were rebelling against like, or it wasn't even really rebelling. They were just like acting out and their music like captures that like youthful acting out as opposed to them like rebelling against like an authority figure or their parents or something. Right. Yeah. And on Spiderland, like it's kind of the same general idea vocally as Tweez, but like, took a much more like serious and kind of sinister and literary turn. Like this like storytelling element got brought in. Yeah. And like, even if I like some of the stories are still kind of wholesome in a way, but they are much more literary. And like, there's this really cool way how, which I don't hear on Tweez, how the, like the, the instrumentals really match the like content of the story, you know, like the, the first song when with the like the song about the story about going to like the carnival and like get on the the roller coaster and there's like the roller coaster sounding like crazy guitar and stuff like they they work together really well which i think that they hadn't really considered before and dynamics are such a huge part of it like that's where a lot of the kind of like songwriting comes is like these loud and soft parts. Well, one thing, I guess, if we're talking about the lyrics on, you know, the, the difference between um, the lyrics, like, the, I think another big part of it was that, you know, they they didn't write any of the lyrics to Tweeze until they were literally in the studio making the record, you know? So it, it's like they wanted vocals on the record, but the actual the actual vocal takes were this kind of afterthought. Yeah. You know, or like the content of them. And I think that that's just like, I don't know. I guess that's part of just like being a young band and like wanting things. You know, I mean, I think it's true even on Spiderland where like the back of the record cover says like searching for a female vocalist. Like they wanted, <laughs> they wanted vocals on the songs, but they just were like, you know, trying to to figure out how to do it. Well, it's interesting too that like the the lyrics and vocals were like completely an afterthought on Tweez or like something they did in the moment. But even though they were more labored over for Spiderland, they were still in a certain sense an afterthought because the band was performing all the songs like repeatedly with no vocals. Like the songs were like, were like finished more or less. And then in the like final, final steps of the, making the album, they were like, okay, let's have vocals. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like the story of um, the dude, Brian, right? Uh, writing yeah. the lyrics and just like listening along to the instrumentals sitting in his parents' car in the garage. Yeah, yeah. I can just imagine that. Right, yeah. Well, I think well, before we talk about Spiderland, I like because I wanted to talk a little bit about that song, Glenn, that I told y'all to listen to yesterday. Because oh, yeah. that to me is like this really like perfect stepping stone in between Tweez and Spiderland. So I guess before we go too deep on Spiderland, um I guess maybe now we could listen to Glenn. 
Wait, so Glenn was supposed to be on Spider-Land? Is that not one of their no, parents' names? It was, no. I guess I could it tell was this. like recorded. Oh, yeah. You should just tell the story. Um, should I just set up Glenn? So, like, you know, after after they made Tweez, um, they booked a tour, you know? Uh, they're basically what would become their only proper tour. But um, Steve Albini, who was, like, their biggest champion ever, had leftover studio time from a different session. I think even maybe the Surferosa um, Pixies session. So they did, they re-recorded uh, one song off Tweez and then they recorded the song Glenn uh, with Steve Albini that I think represents like the, the, um, the, it's like, you know, it was recorded in between the two records and I think it shows their development as this like stepping stone between the two. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's on the um, the 2014 like reissue box set of Spiderland, right? Yep. Like it's it's not from Tweez. No, it's not from either. I think it was just a seven inch or something.
So there's two different versions of the song Glenn. One that was which one came first? The EP version? Yeah, the short the like faster, shorter one is the one that I was talking about came out of that like Albini um session. And then they re-recorded it, I think, during the Spiderland sessions, and that's on the uh like reissue from twenty fourteen. And which one did we just listen to? If you want to be a real head, you can just go listen to both of them. But the one you just heard was the uh, Steve Albini uh, version that ended up on some kind of EP that was put out in 94. But I like the uh, the Spiderland outtake version better. It's slower and kind of scarier sounding. But Colin, what were you saying right before we came back? No, I was just... I was just talking about how it was interesting because Cole was talking about how this song is like a stepping stone. And I didn't even realize there were two different recordings. Um, And so like the Albini version, there was like some, there was something where there was like leftover studio time with Slint. And then also Albini had a band cancel on him. Yeah, they basically got like free studio time. And so they just did it real quick. Yeah, yeah, it's just like an, another influence, like another instance of this in this band's history of Steve Albini, like really helping them out and championing them. You know, like Albini's the one that that brought Squirrelbait to Chicago, got them signed. You know, was playing Tweez for everyone. Um, you know, got them gigs outside of Slint. Recorded this single for free, and then kind of wrote the like defining review and melody maker about um, like the only positive sp- review, right? Yeah, about Spiderland. So I feel like Albini's influence in the band's history like can't be overstated, and this is just like another example of that. Um, another thing, just like a quick aside from the Tweez era, was that they wanted to be on Touch and Go, but like they never heard back from them, and so their friend Jennifer Hartman just like put out the record herself, and as far as I can tell. It- never became a real label and I think that was the only record she ever put out at least according to Discogs huh. and my deep research that I did of searching one <laughs> webpage <laughs> but yeah, yeah so it was like, like a, a really limited release and then it got re-released by Touch and Go years later but um, so like regarding Glenn I think it was like you know, there was this kind of like newfound patience or something that like the, I love the arrangement of it where it's kind of just like, there's like, there's two bass lines and there's three guitar lines really, you know, and there's like an A section, B section and a C section, A section being like the, the bass, the bass line with this like kind of, uh, melodic guitar part over it. The B section being this like guitar part that kind of doubles the the bass line and then the C is like the loud section you know and it has this like pyramid structure where it's like a b c c b a um and it's like it, it it's like you know i feel like all through their career they have kind of like done away with the like traditional um song structure you know and this one is just like very cool and very patient the way that like the song unfolds with these very few minimal parts. Yeah, I feel like a big thing that contributes to the kind of uh, formula of songwriting, you know, verse, chorus, verse, bridge, whatever, is like vocal hooks. And I think because vocals were not 
a main theme of them. The songs were clearly just like, uh, came from just hours and hours of just instrumentally playing in the basement, you know, and just uh, whittling away at, at the structure. Another cool thing about those outtakes on the Spiderland reissue are the riff tapes where they're just, yes. they just play guitar for like five minutes, which is cool to hear because that's how I write a lot of times. It's just like, oh, a riff. Let me just like get this down on tape real quick. Yeah, that's what I used to do when I was a kid. Like our our answering machine had this like function called memo where you could like, I guess, record yourself like being like, take out the trash or whatever the fuck. Like, <laughs> and you could, ju- you know, I would just record... Um, like shitty guitar riffs in it. And my mom would check the answering machine messages and it'd be like like 20 minutes of just like <laughs> unplugged electric guitars, which is what these riff tapes on the on the Spiderland reissue sound like. You know, there's something really that rang true to me, like where they'll have it through an amp and you can hear the distortion like over there, but you can really hear just the like plucked electric strings like right yeah. next to the mic. <laughs> it's so cool. The Dive Podcast. Ben, you started talking about like the, you know, the 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 practice um, like element of the band, and I think that that's a really important part of talking about Spiderland. You know, they had these like, and I think we can relate from mm-hmm. making our record, um, and I think you know we talked a little bit about it on the on the television episode about like a band just like honing their songs endlessly, you know, but um, they were like, they were practicing like eight hour days for four months, you know, five days a week, you know, to make a six song record. Um, And like, it shows, you know, I think like there's a quote from Dave Pajo where he's saying like, most of, most of the, his bandmates memories are from their practices. Pajos like it was almost like the practices were more important than the final product um it was all about practicing and working out those details you can see how we would spend a couple years trying to get all the details right it seemed like even if the most logical answer was the one we began with we still had to try every option go full circle on every decision we could spend three days of practicing to try to find this microsecond between two baselines (laughs) and i feel like i hell of relate to that yeah Make. Especially on Deceiver, like when we were trying to find the structure for um, like before you were born and we tried like all these different things, but then the end product, we ended up cutting out like a full like two minutes of the song because we were just like, all right, we tried everything. Let's just like go back to the basics of like <laughs> verse, chorus, verse. Another totally. thing that they said about the, I guess it's about their writing process that I related to was people just figuring like they already have their part and so they just loop it for the Mm -hmm. one person who hasn't figured their part out yet you know we're basically just like pretending to be logic on loop for them and you know (laughs) yeah but it becomes this like really meditative experience that um i've at least experienced a lot in dive practices Mm -hmm. yeah recently too in rehearsal when we've like been jamming Mm -hmm. um that's generally what it starts to feel like. Like when one of us finds a, a part that works, 
like we just settle in and we're kind of like in an unspoken way, like taking turns until yeah. the song feels like a song or something. Yeah. And like, I think, you know, the television example is a little different because they were kind of practicing live by playing all these shows, but you know, Slint played in, in, um, you know, in four years they played like 30 shows, you know, like they really, they, it wasn't, they weren't doing the kind of like hardcore band thing of like just playing a million shows. It was just like, they really were just spending the time practicing, you know, in his parents' basement or whatever. And the producer yeah. even said, he was like, I'm pretty sure they recorded this better themselves a dozen times, <laughs> you know, cause like they just came in and banged it out in what, like four days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They did it two weekends. Yeah. Well, I think I think he was referring to the takes. Like he was saying, they've probably played the songs much better. Yeah, yeah. But since they had, yeah, yeah, but not record because they had like demo recordings of right, not the <laughs> recording quality, but the right, the takes. yeah, like the performance. Um, yeah, because I did I think- see that he wanted the uh, or one of the sounds he wanted out of the studio. Um, versus the demo was the kick. He wanted to sound like somebody smacking a ham. Yeah, that was on. That was on Tweez. Oh, okay. What is up with that? That will they the documentary um, goes into a lot of details about the like eccentricities of what's his name the the drummer is it Brit Brit Brit, yeah. Brit Wolford yeah yeah just about the different eccentricities and how I mean it, Lance Bangs in that documentary kind of makes the case that. Um, and so does Brian Paulson, who produced Spiderland, makes the case that Brit was kind of like the one uh, at the at the driver's wheel, so to speak, in terms of like atmosphere, like general direction of how the band should sound and how the record should sound. Um, yeah, because he was like the like one of the classically trained ones. You know, he played guitar and he would write songs on guitar. Like I think that song Donnie Mon. Uh, on on Spiderland is is him playing guitar and singing, and, um, I and think it, that and there's his, no drums on that song. I also think that his drumming style makes Slint. You know, it's like listening to the songs, and yeah, the guitar parts are really incredible and like intricate and all that. But if you put just a normal four on the floor behind him, it would be just another rock song. But it's it's really those drum parts that are setting them apart from everything else. Yeah, I and definitely the um. The sound of the drums is kind of the one consistent sound between the two albums, too. Like that snare drum is the exact same sound on both records. <laughs> but mm-hmm. going back to the um, slap in the ham little thing, I think it's in the documentary where <laughs> he said that to Steve Albini and then immediately spilled a cup of tea on his uh, mixing desk. <laughs> yeah, I love that. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty funny. Well, speaking about the drum parts too, like, did anybody listen to the first Breeders record, uh, Pod? Pod, it was like yeah. a gig that that yeah that, that Steve rules. Albini got. The record does rule, and the drums are so much different than like the Pixies or even Last Splash. Like they're, you know, they're really loud in the mix. They're extremely minimal, you know, and you can kind of hear, um, yeah, like it's the same drum sound as as on Glenn. Um, and you can hear like the sensibility because I think that, you know, when we talk about dynamics with slint, there's like the, the, like kind of classic, like loud, quiet, loud, um, you know, dynamics, but also 
on a lot of these songs, the like rhythmic dynamics and the way that the rhythm changes to like either mm-hmm. match the narrative of the song or like the structure of the song. So like, like Nosferatu man goes from, f- goes from five, four to three, four to six, four. And then there's like a section where uh Brit is playing like a straight four, four um, drum pattern with these kind of like, like uh, the guitars are in sections of three. So it like, loops in this weird way and like so i think that it is really important to think about like the the drums as being like a essential element of like what makes this band what it is didn't he um in all the bands he played in after slint he used like a pseudonym like didn't use his real name on the breeders album Um, yeah i don't know what the pseudonym was but yeah he used mike cunt as one of them. And uh, the other one was a woman's name, Shannon something. Like, I think it was a play on Shannon Doherty or something like that. Um, Weird. I don't want to backtrack too much, but just with the practicing thing, one thing that uh, Dave Paho was saying on that Apology podcast was how people, you know, when you say like, oh, like they were practicing for eight hours a day, it makes them sound like these like, you know, studious workhorses, which I'm sure was true. But it was also like people were coming in and out and just like hanging. And I remember that a lot. Like my uh, my friends were in this metal band called Arcane Deception. Sick fucking <laughs> metal name. But um, Sounds like a magic card. <laughs> <laughs> it does. But I would just go to their practices for like hours at a time and just sit there listening to them practice. Just because it was something to do, you know, it wasn't like we've got to put in the work and like really focus. It was just like let's. There's nothing else to do. Let's just yeah. jam. Yeah, I think it was like a combination of that and this like actual like real perfectionism, especially from Brian McMahon. I think had like a extreme perfectionist thing. Like they they called like when somebody would have an idea, they'd be like, "Oh shit!" Like we got to put it under the McMahon microscope. <laughs> We do that too, you know. There's mm-hmm. like the the Colin microscope, which I think is like. <laughs> but like you know, I, like I'm kind of making fun of you, but it, I think it like really f- focuses your ideas, and like you want to bring good stuff, you know, and nothing can like s- just like slip its way into the song. It like forces you to step it up a little bit. Yeah, because everybody's got their individual sensibility, and it kind of yeah. helps helps you check the cheesiness factor or whatever factor might be in there where it's like mm-hmm. just because one person might be stuck in the in the zone of like this sounds so cool but then like in the context of the song or whatever it's like it actually does not sound cool yeah and i i don't take offense to it at all either because i i feel like i i try to do a good job of not having like a set uh like set rules or criteria for when I'm like critical of an idea or when I'm like thinking in that way, I'm tr- always trying to think like what best serves the song or whatever. So it changes. Totally. It's not like mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't like that sound period. And it can never be used. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, but I, yeah, I feel like, I don't know. I feel like he probably got pegged as the one who does that. And, and you guys are joking about how I do that. But I think we all started to do that more and more. Like the the more totally. invested or the more time we were putting into the making the album, mm-hmm. which is ultimately a good thing, I think. Yeah, um, 
I think it yeah, helps the end too. product, but it can also be crippling with perfectionism and making things take forever. Just like anything, you have to like find the balance between knowing when to let go and like holding on tight to a good idea. Totally. Mm-hmm. Which I think like I I guess we could talk a little bit about like the recording of Spiderland. And I think we did talk about how it was just like made in a week, you know, two weekends or whatever. But also like there's no overdubs, there's no reverb, there's no compression. Uh, you know, it's like a lot of like first takes in the studio. And I think that that is like the moment where, you know, they decided to just like let go, you know, like once they mm. practice it out, they're like, okay, this, you know, this is that like the the vocal parts, they didn't practice them as a band with the vocals, but like Brian and Britt had kind of figured that out separately. So then they just like could go in the studio and just like get it, get it done really fast with just absolutely no like trickery or any like studio tricks. There are a few overdubs though, right? Like there are, there's some vocal overdubs. Yeah. And isn't like, isn't there like a solo overdub at the end of washer? You know what I'm talking about? When like the, the lead like solo line comes in after, after it gets loud. The like crying, like, yeah, there are moments on the record where like, which I think is like, speaks to how well done um, the overdubs or lack thereof, uh, how well done it is, because you can't tell sometimes. It sounds so mm-hmm. natural at all all points, you know? Yeah, same with that television record, you know, like where the, yeah. there are overdubs, but you just picture the band in a room. Exactly. And like, there's also something really cool about, you know, they recorded it in the studio that's like not, like I don't think any other band recorded there. Um, it was like a studio where they made jingles in Chicago. Um, but it had this like gigantic live room, which gives it this like kind of, um, really live sound. It's not like the tight small room sound, you know, it has, it sounds like a, like a band in a room. And I think that that's the sound that you can get from having like a large space. Yeah. You can hear the room Mm -hmm. and that's, you know, we were talking about practice. Like that's the, the benefit of those eight hour practice days is just being able to go into a studio and bang it out in a room real quick. Totally. Um, and then like a super quick aside was the, uh, the cover photo, which I feel like has become a, not a meme, but like a kind of like indie rock staple is just that picture, which Mm -hmm. was taken by Will Oldham of them swimming in a quarry. Just do you guys uh fuck with Bonnie Prince Billy at all? I do. I love, I love the uh, I see a darkness record, and that's the only one. And and then that you recommended one to me, Ben, uh, that I also fuck with. Those are the only two. Yeah, I thought I figured you would like I see a darkness. It's that's a great record. Hmm. I've never really listened to Bonnie Prince Billy, but I, I know of him, and and I just really enjoyed while researching um, Slint just this like. These like sometimes familiar faces with Steve Albini, but just these like notable names popping up over and over. And I really <laughs> love how, despite the fact that Slint didn't tour that much um, and kind of ended um, prematurely, like we talked about earlier, I love how they're still so like interconnected with a part of the music world. It was really it was really fun to see all these different names that I recognize. 
Pop-pop. Well, yeah, and we should we should talk about Dave Pajo's solo output and all of the bands that he was in afterwards. Um, well, I think uh, if I may interject, Ben, you may. It would be cool for us to like actually just like talk about what Spiderland sounds like or like how we experience listening to it because I feel like it's a very like it's kind of like a someone in the documentary describes it as like a painting but it also feels like a bit like of a mirror kind of or like a like a blank slate that you just look at and you're able to like feel different shit and that's why it's like really difficult to describe musically so I was wondering totally. if you guys had any like insights into how you hear it well I think we should just listen to one of the tracks sure. I, like I think it'd I be agree. cool to play Good Morning Captain which is like probably their most well-known song and is like part of the reason for their like later success because it was on the the kids soundtrack um, to oh, the yeah. to the movie, movie kids that was put together by Lou Barlow and like the song wasn't even in the movie but it was like on the soundtrack and it, I think that movie came out in ninety four and contributed to like a little bit ninety five yeah like contributed to some of their success like you know after they had been broken up for a while and I also. Before we listen, I, like it's, it's like the most like slint sounding song. I think the like three like most slint songs are "Breadcrumb Trail," "Nosferatu Man," and "Good Morning Captain." And those were the first three songs they wrote for the record. Um, and I think that that's like, you know, they were they were kind of onto something. And then the other songs kind of like balance those songs out or provide like a break in between. Like I heard um, uh, one guy Paho saying that it was like. The, he always liked records that get better and better as you listen. Um, not like listen to the record over and over, but like as you listen to the record, right. it gets better. And like the beginning of the record sort of introduces the vibe, or I forget how he words, like you step into the universe and then get acclimated so that they can give you all the good shit at the end. So sick. And I think that's true on this record. Yeah, I've always thought it was a kind of a mistake to put the the banger at the very beginning or like the single. Yeah. But nowadays you got it. If you're a poser. (laughs) All right. Let's Um, listen. Yeah. Let's listen to good morning, captain.
Well, I think the album I told you about was called Little Lost Blues, which is like a compilation of like singles and stuff of Bunny Prince Billy. Um, uh, so that was Good Morning Captain, the last song on Spiderland, right? Yeah, another another big eight minute track. Yeah, I extremely love this song. Oh, the sorry, the Bonnie Prince Billy record was eased down the road. Oh, okay. Anyway. There it is. There you have it, folks. Podcast is over. <laughs> um, yeah, that song is sick. And Colin, you were saying, I liked your kind of visual metaphors of the album or whatever, calling it a mirror. Oh, yeah. Also, you know, one thing about that um, album cover is even though it's just like a picture of the band, it is kind of mysterious. And I think that a kind of black and white monochromatic thing represents the music really well. Totally. Yeah, not- Especially this, like, you know, the the picture is obviously like really colorful and nice. You know, it's it's like four boys swimming in a quarry with like, you know, there's probably... Some nice like golden hills and nice <laughs> sun, and you know, but like it, you know. I think the cover was kind of mysterious. There's like no text on the front cover. You know, it doesn't say Slint or Spiderland anywhere. It's just the picture. Yeah, and it might just be my lassophobia, but they're in a dark body of water with nothing but their heads sticking out. That's terrifying. Yeah, <laughs> it's a little creepy. I think it's like also. I mean, I I do want to talk about how. Where like tweez sounds very like youthful and playful, uh, Spiderland is like it's it's youthful in like a considerably like darker way, where it, mm-hmm. it feels like 
it feels like an encapsulation of the moments or like your first encounters with like being depressed, you know? Yeah. I was going to say, it sounds like what it is. Freshman in college poetry. Yeah. Yeah. And like this, this album cover to me is very much like, it, it almost seems like it's just like a, a screen grab from a documentary about the band. And it's mm-hmm. like, and they had no idea what was coming next or something, you know, it's like a black and white image of what should be colorful and mm-hmm. like kind of like beautiful is instead just kind of mysterious and, and uh, like melancholy. There's a, you know, a story that's in the documentary and like on Wikipedia or whatever too of, I can't remember which member of the band it is who got in the car accident. Yeah, it was Brian McMahon. Yeah. And how he was like close to death and the um, ambulance said like code 138 and he like regained consciousness to sing the Misfits song, We Are 138. We are 138. And I was just saying it uh, like like muttering it, I think, over and over. Which is like, honestly, like one of the funniest... But also, like, it, it encapsulates what you were saying, Colin, of, like, something being, like, lighthearted but also deadly serious at the same exact time. Yeah. Um, yeah, like, this this idea of, of, like, surviving a near-death experience. Like, you know, I, I think Paho talks about it on the Apology um, podcast because he's an attempt survivor. And he talks about, like, how after his attempt, his voice, his, like, seeing voice changed and never went back. Mm-hmm. You know, and like there's something here too with like, you know, this like Good Morning Captain that we just listened to. It's like, it's like this dark ghost story. Um, mm-hmm. And like there is this like extreme shift in tone in terms of like the, the lyrical content um, that I feel like, you know, surviving a near death experience like that would just like could could trigger something like that. I read somewhere that it was inspired by the rhyme of the ancient mariner. I think that might have uh, yeah. influenced my accusation of shitty college freshman poetry. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's also really telling. <laughs> Bailey, you really snuck in a hot take that I didn't <laughs> react it, to. It's bad. I, was, I, I hadn't lyrics. listened to the lyrics until just now, and I was like, wait, what the fuck is he talking about? So I Googled it. And yeah, Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Yep. It's also a line in a Woody Guthrie song. Good morning, Captain. I do like some of the lyrics. Like, I'm, I've grown taller. Somebody needs to notify the police. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's something very youthful about the like the the way the song ends. Like, I miss you. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's like, it's it's cute, and it's like a kind of like I don't know, interesting way for them to um, end their career with that line. Like last. Also, song, I, you know, I love how in my and me- like in the way I remember this album is like dark you know or like kind of like haunted sounding which it is but it's also like the the record ends on like a major chord which is like a nerdy thing but like you would think that this record spiderland this like dark like you know like legendary record at this point um would end on like a dark note or something but it's like this weird moment of triumph at the end after the yeah after yelling i miss you it's like it kind of just the reason i'm doing a bad job explaining what i'm talking about but like the reason i bring it up is because the album is like constantly at odds with itself and Mm -hmm. it never like it never like 
like sticks a landing on one feeling or atmosphere. It's like always pushing and pulling in and out of different moods. And the um the super dissonant bass line. Yeah. Like I don't besides dissonance, is there like a theory word for what's going on there? It's like something that just doesn't really happen in music that often of just I think like it's a this. tritone, isn't it? I'd have to listen to it again. Yeah, it's a lot of tritone stuff and a lot of like chromatic shit that like the devil's is in a certain sense incorrect, you know? Right. For the bass, like that's partially why I think the mood is so like ambiguous sometimes on this record that like one of the elements, like either the guitar or the bass is like doing like a very unexpected thing and it changes otherwise simple and expected parts and makes them sound very odd. And that's like constantly happening on this album. Yeah, like the like opening chords are are, you know, really nice sounding. And then you throw the like that kind of dissonant um bass line under it and it it changes the your what your expectations would have been otherwise. Mm-hmm. And it makes space for rather than like harmonic information being the main conveyor of like uh the rhythm kind of carrying the songs and which is like a really influential thing i think about that record and happens in a lot of like hardcore and math rock is like this kind of counting rather than just like listening to the melody Mm-hmm. Totally. I feel like this record is always cited as like a you know quintessential math rock record, which like I feel like it kind of. I think Paho did talk about that on that podcast, but like you know that isn't really what they were doing. It's kind of like a mischaracterization of of the of the style, but it is like I was talking about earlier the like rhythmic changes being like a big part of the dynamics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think but it was. Yeah, is like, this considered one of the first like math rock albums? I was trying to figure that out because it like yeah for sure, but, it, but I think in like in like math rock canon or whatever it is like this album cited as like in the same way that like I don't know what's another genre that we listen to or that we've talked about on the like crowd um, or something like, yeah or yeah like, like yeah like noi noi or something like doing something before yeah or shoegaze a band doing something before there was like a real distinct signifier a name for it and then it ends up being like one of the um first records is that is that this record for math rock i couldn't figure that out i think a lot of other stuff um kind of that we talked about earlier like june of 44 and um like don caballero and stuff that might be considered math rock was like happening at the same time or like right after but like it wasn't necessarily influenced by because not a ton of people really knew about the record, I don't think, when it came out. Mm-hmm. Although one thing that it said on Wikipedia was that, you know, they broke up before the album even came out. And so there was no, uh, you know, like promotional cycle or touring whatsoever for it. But it still ended up selling like thousands of copies every year. Mm-hmm. It just like somehow made it out there. How, I don't know. but. Maybe just because of Touch and Go's reach and fan base. Yeah, and like the Steve Albini review and the um, 
you know, kids soundtrack and, and then like, you know, getting described in terms of like post rock and slow core and these like kind of genre tags that like hadn't really existed before, mm-hmm. but it, it was, you know, it's interesting to think, you know, it came out in 91, the same year as, as Nevermind, but, but it was like, it was like a post grunge record before grunge even exploded onto the mainstream, you know, and then the band was gone by the time like the, the, the like, you know, us underground exploded into the mainstream. Um, but before we get too far into like the, the, um, breakup of the band and stuff, I, I was, I was vibing on talking about the like kind of nerdy music guy stuff about this mm-hmm. record. And, and I feel like one thing that, um, this this song highlights that that Good Morning Captain highlights a lot are these like guitar techniques and they use a lot of like really interesting guitar techniques you know even like did anybody watch the the video of them like in Brit's basement playing this yeah. song he's, like the opening chords over here like this yeah, yeah. He's, he's strumming the strings like between the 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 nut the top of the guitar and like usually you string between the the bridge and the and the fretted note, and that's what, you know, that's that's how you play guitar or whatever, but they're strumming, like, on the other side of their hand, and it makes this, like, really... Yeah, it creates, like, a two-tone thing. Right. Yeah, every note is, like, the string... Yeah, the string is vibrating on both both ends. Um. So, like, you know, that that's, like, kind of the... What's responsible for that that sound... Um, and then, you know, they use a lot of harmonics, pinch harmonics, um, especially Paho plays a lot with, with just like harmon these like harmonic, um, guitar harmonics as being like the main riff, like, especially in breadcrumb trail, you know, that like, yeah. I like them trying to explain what harmonics were in the documentary. They're like, so what is a harmonics? Oh, and they're like, so uh, funny. you know, you just got to put your hand here. Like they had no idea how to describe it. Yeah. He's like, it's just this other thing to like play around with. <laughs> yeah. I, I did want to bring up the, the moment in the documentary where Albini is making note specifically about slint about the how like each member's like awareness of their instrument was like really like off the charts mm-hmm. and they just like knew what they could and could not be doing with their tone and everything and i think that's that's like probably a big result of just like sitting in that basement playing for hours and hours and hours and also i think that's part of the reason why where like a lot of math rock is like annoying to listen to to me but still employs like similar techniques or like, you know, technical metal or something like that using that same, probably similar types of like, like hands cross, like tapping techniques and stuff. Yeah. On this album, the, the technical aspects of the way they play their instruments never is like an obstacle for me listening to the song. It's like Mm -hmm. the, the parts are like distilled and like refined so well where they're like at its core, they're just musical as opposed mm-hmm. to being like flashy or technical. Yeah, it's like, like showy. It's, it yeah. feels like people who cannot play any other songs. You know, like if you just gave a non-musician <laughs> a guitar and said, here's how to play this one song, practice it for a few years, that's what it would sound like. <laughs> but I mean that as yeah. a compliment. Yeah, no. To me, it's like, to me, it's like that it, it, it sounds still like that kind of like rebellion against, 
you know, like Paho had been like an a, like a pretty accomplished like you know metal guitar player, like knew his instrument inside and out. Same with same with Brit had been like you know the, like classically trained, and they had this understanding. But like then they're you know kind of like we were talking about in the last podcast about like musical form being seen as like authoritarian. You know they're like they're not mm-hmm. rebelling against their parents, but they're really rebelling against the like like authoritarian type music song structure and against like the the like kind of genres that that they were um founded in and the know, machismo like, that they grew of, the, out of like yeah the machismo of the louisville scene at the time totally like washer is like the vocals on that song are so you know it reminds me of that noise song that we were talking about in the podcast a while ago like so fucking raw um, just like very... yeah, I like the, uh, the other Albini anecdote of hearing that song for the first time and th- thinking that they had made a great mistake allowing him to sing because <laughs> <laughs> the vocals were bad. But then he he like says he's changed his mind and he he describes it as user error yeah. on his part, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which I agree with. And I think I feel like Washer's my favorite um, song on the album, or has been. In mm-hmm. the past, because I've I've listened to this album for like a long time at this point, partially because um, I went to school in Chicago and like it's it's just a part of like Chicago lore at this mm-hmm. point because mm-hmm. Albini is like such a fixture there, and so anything they worked on, but particularly this particularly this album, I guess probably just because it's such a good like soundtrack to just like flat gray Illinois. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, Washington and was the kind of my... like intellectual bubble that like you know these like college towns and areas around Chicago True. are these like these like cosmopolitan little like enclaves with these like alternative schools and and um, you know access to education and and all that. True, but every time I play Washer for someone, they always get tripped up on the vocals. They're like, oh, I don't like the vocals. And I guess I guess I understand if I take a step back, but I, it's never bothered me. But they're definitely like, they're definitely really raw and uncomfortable in a certain regard. Yeah, I feel like yeah, that just, is kind of a Chicago thing too. Is like, because I feel like the term art rock was like birthed out of Chicago. Mm. And you know, Cole, we've started to talk about Joan of Arc and the Kinsella mm-hmm. bands and stuff, and that's like a huge fixture of this thing where once you've been listening to it for a bunch of years, like you don't even think about it, but then someone who's listening to it for the first time is like, what on earth are these vocals? And you're like, oh yeah, I guess the vocals are weird. Yeah. But it just seems normal. I can't get in. I can't get into the vocals yet, but I I get it. I'm starting to get it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's, it is weird and bad, but I love it. (laughs) And like in terms of Chicago art rock, like I feel like the one of the biggest names is is Tortoise. Um, yeah, th- that you know Paho, Dave Paho, um, played bass in for a long time, and they're kind of like are the the torch bearers of like post rock or or art rock, especially from Chicago. Yeah, John, I feel like I that my old Ben Young man made a record with John McIntyre, who is in Tortoise. And I don't think he told me, he told me about a bunch of shit, but I don't think he told me about Slint. I think I had been listening to it. I, that was probably one of the reasons why I wanted to uh, make an album with him because he was just like part of that world, you know? Mm-hmm. 
there was some there's something really like cool to me um about just like people that are like like stoic and depressed and good at their instruments or at least at that time it was like these guys are cool even though like it's so funny now to watch in the documentary all the dudes or not all the dudes but a lot of the dudes in slint like a lot of a lot of their interview footage is like really awkward and there's just like kids toys everywhere they're just like dads <laughs> now <laughs> and yeah. like they're so like not to say that they're lame but they're just like they're not like rock stars in any regard, you know? No. Right. Just these, like, li- these intellectual dudes, you know? But, like, still conceptual in this way, like the James Murphy thing in that documentary where he's talking about Brit starting the, like, penis themed cake bakery called, like, Master Baker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I feel like that says so much about, like, where they're coming from. You know, like, I feel like I've talked about another podcast about Ian McKay talking about the, like, doorknob game where like yeah. you fart and have to touch a doorknob and it's like if you don't touch a doorknob we'll punch you and Imakai's like go ahead punch me he's like so serious yeah. that's how I knew that I was watching the same thing that you guys had seen because I've heard Cole tell that story so many times I was like oh, okay. yeah <laughs> except I always thought it was Albini who told that story uh, and then and then uh, like it just that like really for me cemented like oh, these are the people who make this music. Kind of right, like in yeah. the same way as watching, like if anybody's seen um, that little Elliot Smith documentary mm-hmm. where like, you know, he's seen as this like extremely, like the poster child for like, like earnest, sad, depressed guy music. And then you watch the the documentary and he's just a fucking goof. He's like an OG, <laughs> hip, like mm. the original like Portland hipster guy who's just like... <laughs> You know, kind of who's funny and awkward and whatever. And like, I, you know, I don't think that you don't, you don't have to like live the reality of your music. Like, it's just, you know, your music mm-hmm. is a response to your environment in some ways, but like, you know, also it's your artistic voice and it doesn't say anything about you as a person, particularly. And Slim was putting yeah, the goofy we, shit on the record. Like, Tweez has them taking shits and stuff, right? Yeah. yeah it's like recordings like, of fart, just like crazy farts. Insane. They called it the anal an- breathing. The anal yeah. breathing tape. Yeah, good stuff. It's yeah, really they did f- not want to talk about that. <laughs> I know. I was like hoping it wouldn't come up. The part yeah, um, that's what I'm here for. The part of the documentary <laughs> that made me laugh the hardest, partially because it really reminded me of a specific moment um, when I was younger, like 16, playing in like probably one of my first bands or something. I feel like a lot of people have a story similar to this, but when they played at like a church um, yeah. and they were like billed for whatever reason as like entertainment. It was like rock and roll by, and they were billed as small, dirty, tight tufts of hair, cold yeah. beads. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> it's so, but, and they describe how like everyone just like walked out. Yeah. They yeah. Said the dude was playing a stack. <laughs> like all these old ladies. Yeah. <laughs> Or even just, just like the band name Slint, you know, just like it has this kind of intense, uh, you know, feeling to it, I guess, because I like encountered the the music and the name side by side, but like it's just being named after a pet fish. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. You picture some like hardened yeah. leather wearing motorcycle dude, like, oh, I'm Slint, but it's just a pet fish. <laughs> Or like it reminds me of, you know, when we all came to the realization during the slow dive episode that Suvlaki is named after a jerky boys bit and you're like, (laughs) yeah, 
it simultaneously you know, but, makes it better and ruins it at the same time. Totally. <laughs> well, uh, speaking of the slow dive episode, though, I did want to talk about, um, like, you know, since we kind of were talking a little bit about post breakup life for them, uh, all tomorrow's parties and primavera. We had a long conversation about primavera when we recorded the slow dive episode, but we cut it out cause it was too long. But yeah, when we talked about primavera, it was just like how it's kind of, and I feel similarly about all tomorrow's parties cause it's artist curated, you know, and mm-hmm. slant curated, uh, the festival one year, but they also did um, a Primavera set that was, they played Spiderland in its entirety. And I just feel like the curators of Primavera are so cool because it's like that question of like, if you could have any band play this festival, you know, whether they're broken up or not, like who would it be? And that's just who they get to play the festival. Totally. Um, yeah, because it's arguably the best music festival in the world, you know? Yeah. I think so. Um, it was cool, too, hearing Paho talking about, on that Apology podcast, talking about like having to relearn uh, his own parts from Slint songs, and was like, damn, the um, hard work really did pay off. Yeah, I was wondering <laughs> yeah. about that. I was watching videos of them playing at the Primavera, and I was like, they must have had to spend... I was looking at Brit specifically, like all those weird drum parts, and he doesn't seem like the type of dude to really practice, you know? But I guess yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah have we you guys talk about their... Go on, Ben. I was just going to ask if you had listened to any of Pajo's solo stuff, because he has a bunch of records. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, under I've listened to Papa some of the M. Papa M stuff. But he also has, like, I think just M and, and Dave Pajo and, um, and but Ariel like all something. their Ariel M, but all their, like, you know, they all, they talk about it a little in the documentary about like all the stuff they did afterwards. And like they're all kind of hard to pin down, you know, like Brits doing stuff under pseudonyms and playing with these like, like blues musicians and like motorcycle clubs yeah, and shit. Did you find any recordings or videos of that? I tried so hard because the pictures are hilarious. It's like yeah, all the these aging so blues dudes and like really fancy like cowboy uniforms or whatever they're called. And then just he looks just like a little <laughs> hipster playing drums for them. But it's just pictures. I can't find any recording. I looked it up. Like the dude Smoketown Red or something like that. I never heard of these guys. Yeah. But that is um, just like probably the coolest thing anybody can do after quitting like an indie rock band, in my opinion. Right. <laughs> yeah. Definitely based. <laughs> And he doesn't give a um, shit. He says he writes music, but just he said he's waiting for a band to like. Yeah, he did put out a song. If we're talking about Brit, he did put out a song like last year or something under a name with like a like somebody from King Crimson, and it's like it kind of sounds like Tortoise. It's just like long, uh, kind of sounds like Slint too in terms of the drums, but it's like very post rock. He put it out with someone from King Crimson. <laughs> Yeah, it was like a super group thing um, mm. that I don't know. I I closed the tab like yesterday, but and then yeah, just I feel like the bands that Paho played in, like Yeah Yeah Yeah's, Stereo Lab, Interpol, Tortoise, Zwan. It's just like you could just take those bands, and you're you've got like all the research you're going to need to do for like the rest of your life as far as indie rock goes, mm-hmm. like. You couldn't 
try to be in like more, if you're talking about like indie or whatever, more like mm-hmm. important bands. It's just kind of crazy that this one, the Billy Corgan that. side thing. Yeah. Yeah. Side. We got to do yeah. a Billy Corgan episode. I know. I can't wait. God. Oh, oh God. Uh, before we move on, the, the band that I was talking about with, um, with, uh, Britt Wolford. It was actually in 2014, but it was it was called Water W A T T E R, and um, I swear I saw something about King Crimson, but uh, it's not in this thing that I'm looking at right now. But it has one of the dudes from Grails. Oh, cool. Water. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah, I mean they. As we talked about Primavera and they uh they got back together a bunch of times and did these like little one offs or like tiny tours, but seems like the last time that happened was two thousand fourteen. Mm-hmm. Am I right? So maybe maybe they're done for real this time, but who knows? I thought they did something in twenty eighteen. That's entirely possible. I think or when I typed in slint live twenty, it suggested eighteen. That's the only reason. Nice. Well, that's all the research you need. (laughs) Case closed. (laughs) Google knows. But like, you know, I think that the main thing talking about, about Slint in like a, like post Slint, like long-term sense is just like their, their influence, which I think we did talk about, but it's like, you know, there's that Velvet Underground idea or like quote about Velvet Underground. Like everybody who heard Velvet Underground started a band. Mm -hmm. And I think you could probably argue the same thing about, about Slint where it's, it's like, you know, it's like a a musician's band where it's like always cited as as like hugely influential for bands, you know, including us. Um, but like, it's it's not part of the like traditional like canon of of um, you know, like rock music or 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 like '90s underground music. Yeah, I think that's like why we're talking about it is because it was like a specific reference for us was like in the studio or whatever being stuck on a part and being like well let's put like a slant guitar part there you know it's like a specific Mm -hmm. reference you can make because it is such specific sounding music that was my introduction to the band is y'all being like maybe this needs a slant part and having to go listen to slant to figure (laughs) out what that meant dive podcast i think it would you know we've been like the first season of this podcast we had all the you know we'd make a jam every week and then now obviously we're like we can't get together and jam but uh we do have like i think there's like three things in the in our shared folder that say like slint jam mm-hmm. mm. so I, f- I feel like we could just like play something from one of those um, oh yeah because- we might be able to find something in there yeah, it like really is like a massive influence I think on on our last record and and stuff we're continuing to do right mm-hmm. now. Yeah, because it's like with a lot of genres um you know like shoegaze or kraut or things that we've talked about it's not that you can't make original music using those templates but like slint because it was just one band and it wasn't really like a genre it's like it's there's more work yet to be done on that sound, you know? Like you can still mm-hmm. c- 
create original creations using their influence. Totally. You fucks. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm good. Are y'all good? Yeah, I feel pretty good. Yeah, I'm good too. That nice. was a fun one. It's cool doing one record. I mean, we did we did do two records just now, I suppose. But yeah, but we kind of just kept it to talking about the record, basically. Yeah, yeah, that one was cool. Yeah, so I, I really, guess I'll have to have to go into those demos and try to find a slinty sounding thing. Yeah. Yeah, there might just I I swear there's one just says like slint jam, but I might be wrong. Yeah, I'm sure there is. All right, well, um, that was fun, and I enjoyed talking and listening. And um, we will do it again next week. We haven't decided what the subject will be, but we'll figure it out. You'll be the first to know. (laughs) (laughs) The fifth to know. And 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 Danny, when I'm just like constantly yeah, blasting, and, like and our wives and girlfriends. <laughs> yeah.